You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well and welcome to this second episode of this mini series that I'm producing in partnership with the Forestry Commission about trees on farms. And once again, I'm joined by my co-host for this series, Mr. John Burgess, who Hi, is man. a local partnership advisor and woodland resilience officer with the Forestry Commission. John, it's great to see you again. Do you, do you want to sort of introduce this particular episode? So what are we talking about today and who are we joined by? Well, yeah, thanks for inviting me back, Ben. Um, today, the question is all about how listeners can make money from their trees on their farms. Now, that doesn't have to be just about timber, although we will definitely be talking about that. Uh, there are lots of other ways to make your farm woodland profitable. We're joined today by two guests, Jemima Letts from the forestry team at Chatsworth Estate in Derbyshire. Jemima started on the estate as an apprentice, now employed there as a permanent basis. We're also joined by forester Sam Watmore from Grasscott Farm in Devon. And Sam founded Forest Fuels Limited. Welcome to you both. Yeah, welcome both. It's really good to have you here. We're both really looking forward to this uh, this conversation. Jemima, can we start with you? Tell us a little bit about your journey into forestry and your current role at Chatsworth as well. So I suppose my journey into forestry was it was a bit of a mistake. I went to a very uh, I went to a very academic secondary school. So the route was you did your exams and you went to uni. I didn't really want to go to uni and be stuck inside all the time. So I started, started looking around for some sort of management courses. Purely by accident, stumbled across, I saw Bangor offered a forestry course. Okay. And it just, I was like, oh, that's a good 200 miles away from home, four year long, and I can learn about trees. And I sort of just committed, not really knowing what forestry was, but rocked up, did the four years and absolutely loved it. Um, and it turned out I wasn't too bad at it either. So um, did my degree and learned there's a lot more to forestry than than you think. Um, and I then came to Chatsworth. I applied for a placement here sort of graduate placement when I finished my degree. So I was only supposed to be here for a year, even with COVID, had a great time. I was very lucky that my skill set, although forestry can be a really practical industry, I'm not as practical as you could be. I'm far better at the admin side, the planning side, the tech side, like the mapping side. And I've just sort of looked out that my skill set sort of really fitted into what the department needed at Chatsworth because it's been expanding over the past few years. So I sort of got asked to stay on Okay. And I'm now here permanently as their assistant forester. Exciting. Let's carry on with the introductions. Sam, let's go over to you. So you established your 85 hectare forest in Devon nearly 25 years ago now. Um, and it's predominantly Douglas fir with some Sitka spruce, field maple, ash, chestnut and oak. Um, and we'll discuss the detail of your business as we go on. Um, but give us an idea about Grascott Farm. Um and the revenue streams uh, that you've generated from your woodland. Funny enough, I was a Bangor graduate as well. So um, All right. good old Bangor producing some, some foresters of some use. Um, <laughs> but I, I worked as a contract forest manager, really, for private estates and woodlands in Hampshire for about 10 years. But I found that the problem you really have there is you don't have the continuity of management. If you have long-term ownership of woodland, then you can see the effects of what you do come through, even if you choose to work at a a slower pace or on longer term plans like continuous cover forestry. So my dream really was always to own my own forest. And then in 1998, the two things really came together. One was that land prices were particularly low at the time. 
um, particularly with with hindsight, one can see that. Um, but also there were very attractive grant rates then. And so the sort of perfect storm of those two um, meant that I hunted around and found a, a farm in Devon in 1998 and bought the farm and immediately put the entire farm into what was then the Southwest Forest Scheme, which is a Forestry Commission scheme to plant trees on land. And I planted the entire farm with 150,000 trees over the following two years. It's been a big, big journey since then, really. I- initially, there really wasn't a business because it was just a, a load of trees on some farmland. But really, over the last 25 years, I've built a very kind of thriving mixed enterprise based upon the forest, but also based upon the tangible and intangible products it can produce. And in fact, today is quite a good example because I've got um, I've got a man out cutting teepee poles okay. um, and he supplies a company who put up teepees at Glastonbury. Um, oh, we've wow. also got uh, a firewood business. So we've got a lot of firewood going out this time of year. And that's all kiln dried using a biomass boiler. And then on top of that, we've also got three out of four of our holiday cottages are full at the moment. And we really encourage the guests to enjoy the farm and enjoy the forest and to walk in the forest and enjoy what we have to offer right here on site. So there's quite a bit of sort of sales going on right there um, on a a daily basis. That's really fantastic to hear, Sam. But the original vision to plant that many trees, does you think it's actually you've achieved that? that original vision or mm. did it change over time? Um, I think that's a very interesting question. The vision definitely has changed over time um, because I think when you take a piece of land and you just plant trees on it, all you're really doing is changing it from, from one land use to another. And, and the journey then that begins is what do I do with that forest? How do I manage it? How do I take it from just, just trees on farmland to an actual working, thriving forest which produces clean water, uh, it might produce clean water, it might produce tourism, it might produce timber, it might produce firewood, it might produce fungi and food. When you initially plant farmland, you're just creating a sort of template. And then the exciting thing is what are all the kind of amazing things you can weave into that over the, yeah, yeah, over, yeah. the over time as the forest develops and as it becomes much more of a sort of active, proper forest rather than just, just trees on farmland. Was that sort of multi-purpose forestry? part of that vision i mean do, do you allow access onto the land to you know are, are you near a, a, a community of people no we're, we're quite remote here in, in north okay. devon um and so we already had some public access there was a bridleway across the farm um but i suppose um having studied forestry at bangor one of the key questions which i think has become even more sort of poignant over time is how do you derive a payment for the non non-tangible products you produce it's very easy if you, you produce timber, you can measure it and you can sell it to a person who buys timber. But what if you produce clean water or biodiversity or carbon sequestration or landscape, all these sort of non-tangible benefits? And although I did forestry 35 years ago at Bangor, even then, a lot of the key economic discussions in the degree were about exactly that, which is how do you, how do you get those non-timber revenues? Just just coming in here on on Bangor, I suppose. I, was, I just find it fascinating that you were you were at the same place, but at different times. Do you mind what was your experience in terms of that? I suppose that multi-purpose aspect and and any focus on that. I think yeah, I think it was a very hot topic when I was at university. It still is. It's sort of the topic on everyone's lips. I think there's a big push on trying to show that forestry does a lot more than just produce timber. Obviously, that's the main that's the main part of it, and it's still a main part of my job is timber production but it's not just timber production. We do so much more behind the scenes that people don't really see. But we also, as a profession, we're not very good at talking about it either. Okay. Um, 
So all of these talks about, you know, non-tangible assets and, and how you can get payment for them, it's it's sort of coming to a head where loads of forest owners are actually like, oh, actually, we've been doing this for ages anyway. Oh, it's, it's like an incentive for other people to look into it and to consider it and to almost be like, well, actually, those trees are probably worth more standing than they are cutting them down for, for chip. But this is, is nothing new. I remember being told when I was at college, um, an old quote, the wood that pays is the wood that stays. So hmm. over hundreds of years, we've been deforesting the UK, but there was a turning point uh, start of the Forest Commission. But but the woodlands that survived at that point were generally woods that were managed and worked. So the new forest, uh, you know, oak coppice down here in the southwest, that wood had to have a purpose, otherwise it was cleared and, and alternative land uses. So absolutely, we just talk about it in different ways now and, and a lot more savvy with our, our terminology. But I think um, that's really fascinating. That quote is by a man called Jack Westby. Did you know that? He was a real, what you'd call, strangely, a a forestry philosopher. Um, He wrote a lot of really interesting books. He wrote one called The Purpose of Forests, funny enough, which is exactly about that, which is, you know, what are they for? What what value do they hold to society? And even though Jack Westby is quite long dead now, um, and he wrote that book 50 years ago, it's incredibly um, poignant still today. Tell us a bit more about your wood fuel business. Uh, back in 2000, the biomass renewable energy market was only really just emerging, I think. Uh, and you were very much ahead of the curve installing your own biomass boiler in 2003. Is that right? Yeah, that almost encapsulates what I talk about the journey. I had planted 150,000 trees in 1998, 99. And then I'd begun to develop holiday cottages on the farm because I could see that there was scope for developing old buildings. I went to an event. What I always smile about then was quite sort of hippie-ish, really. It was about renewable energy. And renewable energy in 2000, most of the people at the meeting were uh, wearing sandals and had ponytails, um, which is quite funny to see the renewable energy journey (laughs) and how incredibly mainstream it is now. Um, But back then I went to it and there was a man who was starting to import biomass boilers from Germany called Robin Cotton. And he started a company called Wood Energy Limited. And I'd never even heard of biomass boilers. And I really, I swear to this day, the word biomass really wasn't in the English dictionary before that date. Okay. Um, and I went up to him afterwards. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. You know, what a what a brilliant idea. So basically, you've got a boiler which runs on the kind of wood that is is almost of no value in forestry at the moment. So it's the kind of wood that was being sold to make chipboard. Um, he was suddenly saying, well, actually, this is brilliant. This is an oil substitute. Um, you can take that wood and you can run a boiler on it exactly the same way as you might have a boiler that runs on oil. I suddenly saw how it could fit on my own farm and I could use a biomass boiler myself to heat my own buildings and my holiday cottages. And then that journey really mushroomed. I mean, really did explode out of control. In 2006, I started a company called Forest Fuels and Forest Fuels grew to be probably the largest biomass supplier in the UK. We had sales of about 10 million a year. And I know the company now, which I'm no longer a part of actually because I sold it a number of years ago but it's grown to be certainly certainly one of the biggest players in the UK biomass market supplying chip and pellet to boilers across the UK. What about grant support Sam when you were starting up um, how did you make the numbers stack up I suppose in those early years and uh, and also going through I suppose have you had any more grant support going forward? Um, yes I mean I, I can't lie I have always been a um, quite a taker of grants where they're available <laughs> I suppose, um, no, not a bad thing. You're, really. talk, you're talking to, a, you to an audience of farmers here. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and and you should view grants um, as, um, you know, they're often there to kickstart industries. So the grant I took to plant the farm with trees was there to encourage farmers to 
uh, take land out of production effectively. And then there were also grants to start the biomass business and to put the boiler in as well. So, yes, there have been very good grants. And, and unpopular though it may sound, I actually think the, the government at the time did a very, very groundbreaking grant. The renewable heat incentive for biomass boilers um, was a very cleverly designed and very groundbreaking grant. When I travelled quite extensively across Europe looking at biomass there, there were quite a number of European countries who were quite jealous of the scheme we had and quite admired it and said it was quite a progressive scheme. Yeah, talking about supply chains now is, is a, a fact I heard the other day, which it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks, but is how much timber we still import as a country. We're only 20% timber secure. You know, we need to grow more timber um, for, for whatever the end purpose Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And what I find shocking is, you know, I'm producing kiln-dried firewood in North Devon. We're kilning it using biomass, so we're doing it in a very green way. and We're getting it down to 15% moisture content. And yet I see crates being delivered that I know have come from Latvia and Lithuania and mm. previously from Ukraine. It's shocking. We're importing, well, I think several million tons of firewood at the moment each year into the UK. And yet we have, you know, over a, a million acres of unmanaged woodland, according to the Small Woods Association. So it's a very sad thing that we don't, we don't have a sort of coordinated plan to try to shorten those supply chains uh, and also to produce, you know, homegrown timber for, for homegrown markets when we are actually much more capable of doing it than than some people realise, I think. Let's talk about scale. Um, how important is scale when it comes to making forestry, and I suppose farm forestry in particular, because what we're talking about today, um, economically viable? And I mean, John, I'm actually going to turn to you on that. Can you just give us your, your view on that? Yeah, there's a number of factors at play there, really, Ben. It's, I mean, you can plant a you know just a couple of trees and take the fruit from them, take the, the timber from them. But really, a forest does work at a, at a larger scale because of the, the machinery that you need to harvest it. You know, it can be quite specialist bits of kits, um, you know, a timber trailer to attach to the back of a tractor. Um, whilst, you know, they're not the most expensive bits of kit, you, you, you know, you want to make sure that you're using the money you've spent. But in other terms, it's it's the forest ecology. You know, it, it takes scale for the species to to use the forest, and that comes from from bigger, better, more connected. That was sort of one of the, the things that yeah, came out yeah. of the Lawton report a few years ago. So, for the economics of running a business, it needs to be large, and for the for the for the woodland just to function to be healthy and resilient. But I wouldn't want to dissuade someone who only wants to plant an acre just to you know to enjoy the the, the landscape and that brings so don't not plant trees just because you've only got a, a small amount of land yeah and your thoughts on this jemima how, how does this ring true at chatsworth um i think i think it just depends on what your intentions are for the for the woodland i mean we sort of forestry terms our forestry land holding is quite small when you think of Think of the, the forest that's up in Scotland under our management. We manage quite a lot of sort of farm woodlands as part of the that are not excluded from farm tenancies that we're obviously renting out. We obviously have we manage all the safety and the timber rights for all the trees on the estate. So we do manage a lot of smaller areas that would have been previously farm woodlands. They're incredible resources, even just the shelter belts and even areas that are wet that you can't really use for, for any purpose, planting them as sort of riparian corridors with water-loving species. Yep. So I think really it can be economically viable, even if it's just small. Fun enough, going back to the, the Bangor analogy, um, when I was at Bangor, I was taught one thing which I remember. I remember some of my things from university, but one key <laughs> thing I was taught then, which is that um, sawmills fall into two different scales, really big scale, very high throughput, very inflexible, producing a limited number of products, 
um, but producing it with massive economies of scale. And then there are very small, small sawmills who are very, very flexible. You go to them and you want a, a funny length or a size of beam, and they're able to do that because they're small and flexible. And I think that same parallel exists in forests, because if you look at big forest enterprises, like down here we have Clinton Estates, we have Duchy of Cornwall, and we have the Forestry Commission, who are the three really big landowners down here. They're producing raw material timber on a, on a very big scale, but they're not geared up to do small fiddly orders at all, whereas I really am. So I get a call for someone wanting 10 cubic meters of wood chip for, a, you know, maybe for gateways because they're doing a wedding or yeah. something like that or for a festival. Or I get a call from a guy who wants a ship's mast, which I've had. <laughs> or I get a call from someone who wanted to create a sort of mock up of Stonehenge using timber. I'm able to respond to those kind of markets because I'm small and flexible. I'm not committed to those big scale contracts at the commission or maybe Chatsworth or you know, the, the bigger landowners are. So I actually think there's, you're not trying to compete on the same terms. And I would say an, another similarity there would be with a farmer, whether you choose to produce 50,000 litres of milk a day and sell it to, you know, one of the big dairy companies, or whether you decide to produce, you know, your own yogurt and yeah. uh, you sell through a small milk outlet or you smell through your farm shop. Or It's about scale and about approaching different markets and about being flexible enough to to respond to small markets. So yeah, Jemima, tell us what what's Chatsworth? Is it is it one of the, the big estates or are you dealing in TP poles and ships masts as well? <laughs> <laughs> um we we do a bit of both. We have a felling program we complete every year. We fell between seven and eight thousand tons of timber a year. We do almost everything in-house. We've got our own harvesting team in-house and everything. So that means quite a lot of our timber we try and sell onto the like like Sam was saying the larger sawmills. But I think because we've got so much control over both our workforce and our land holding, we're also able to do the small strange things. We've actually provided quite a few trees for film sets, so they're also looking for certain heights and they're they're, they're, not, okay. they're not wanting lows. They're wanting like twenty spruce trees or whatever, and we've been able to provide that because we've got the workforce that we control and the woods that we own. So we're quite a, quite a nice sort of happy medium where we're not a huge player in terms of producing timber. We can still sell stuff to, to larger sawmills, but we also get to sort of, well, not mess around, but we get to have fun. with Every time we get a ring, we, we do quite like to have a bit of fun and try and find see if we can, you know, help them out, really. <laughs> <laughs> what about carbon credits? I mean, a lot of farmers, or maybe not a lot of farmers, but more an increasing number of farmers are starting to engage with this. And I'm, I'm interested in to see actually how foresters are engaging in it. How, how are you earning revenue from carbon credits and planning growth for that income stream at Chatsworth? So we've we've sort of, at the moment, we've got a few of our creation sites sort of logged under the carbon code. So we're, we're waiting to sort of start selling the units and get them all accredited. We're sort of waiting and making a, a large group of projects. I think from submitting it, until validation, you've got a five-year period. So we're sort of all the new planting that we do in this five-year period, we're putting all in as a big group because we all we own the same land. And then we'll be looking to start sort of selling the credits. Chatsworth is part of the Devonshire group, so the, the Devonshire family's sort of holdings. There's talk as to whether we'll either be selling these, these credits. I mean, it's, it's a bit like the stock market, but for carbon. So we'll either be looking to sell these credits on the open market to external companies um, but we're also having sort of discussions with our own in-house businesses. So we've obviously got the Denver Hotels Group. We've got the, hat, the main Chatsworth House. 
we're in talks with them as well as to whether we can actually utilize the credits internally to offset our own carbon, yep. um, which I think would be a really nice good news story, actually. What's really good is that you can obviously get grant support for creating new woodlands and you can get maintenance payments to help you establish the woodland over the first 10, 10 years. And then after that, there's sort of almost a gap. If you're looking to harvest the timber, there's quite a large gap between maintenance payments finishing and you then being able to fell the timber and the carbon code, these carbon credits sort of, they bridge that gap quite nicely. You've almost got a revenue stream throughout the whole life of the woodland, which I think for smaller projects is a lot more important than it is for, for larger projects and for people that have got a smaller landholding and are doing it on a smaller scale. So, yeah, thanks, Joe. It's really interesting to, to hear about your woodland creation. Just tell us a little bit more about that, sort of what species, what scale? Uh, so on, on the Chatsworth Estate, we've done... I think it's about 96 hectares over the last 12 years we've done of new sort of actual wood creation sites um, and it's been a right it's a real mix of things um, we've done some that have adjoined onto existing woodlands so there's one area that's actually quite prominent south of Chatsworth House which joins adjoins onto the woodland on the escarpment we've also done some more planting with commercial a commercial sort of view in mind so we've got parts of land sort of just just the other side of the M1 We've planted a right mix, actually. We've got some tight-spaced native broadleaves um, to try and encourage them to grow up and straight and less branchy. We wanted to try our hand at planting eucalyptus, um, and we actually did, as part of our new planting site, we planted, I think it was about 12 different species of eucalyptus in different sort of coops just to see which was going to do best for us. Um, And then we've done another quite large area on the main estate in the in the Peak Dish National Park, which was an area of farmland that was actually sort of, it was um, handed back by the, the tenancy. They couldn't make the farmland make profit. We've planted quite a lot of Douglas fir um, on the side. We've also done some high-density oak um, because although people assume that we'll have loads of really nice oak trees, they're definitely things that have been, uh, they've been taken by previous generations of foresters and not really replenished. So we're looking to try and try and grow some very nice sort of veneer oak in the future, obviously, hopefully, hopefully not being felled in my lifetime. But well, Hopefully you'll live a long and prosperous life. And it might, might just be. But yeah, no, really, really interesting to hear talk about the different species choice. And you used a word right at the start there, sort of you planted some productive woodland. And I think that's just something that's worth just exploring a little bit more there. What do you classify as being sort of productive woodland? Because you mentioned the oak then as being, you know, sort of veneer quality, which is productive. So, I suppose, I suppose when I say productive, I'm thinking the strictly timber term of the sense. I suppose on all the sites, we've sort of designed the site based on the landscape and the site characteristics. One of the areas we've got planted with Douglas fir, which I would call productive, it's a productive space. And so it's its main purpose is as a timber crop. But we've sort of scalloped the edge. We don't want a hard straight edge because that's not very natural. And all the wet areas, because there's quite a few sort of brooks running down through the site, we've softened off with riparian corridors, which we planted with wider spaced leaves, things like aspen, alder, um, hazel, willow, etc. And the, the aim of those is, although they're, I suppose you could call them productive, but they're productive in a different way. The aim is is for those trees to be left there, they're not to be touched, sort of long-term retention. And so they're there to sort of protect the watercourse and create habitat corridors. There's no point planting it with a productive conifer because it won't grow very well because it's wet, it's not good for the watercourse, it's good to buffer the watercourse when you're planting it anyway. Um, and it also just, it helps it blend in with the landscape a lot better. 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, yeah, didn't didn't mean to sort of push you too hard on that, but it it's like all oh, the trees are, are doing something. They're all providing clean air. They're all helping to provide clean water. But yeah, it was just you just meant in a sort of a monetary way. But yeah. it's great. Um, and what are the future plans for woodland expansion? Are, are you going to be doing more? And and at what age will you start to harvest the the, the crops that you've planted? We're lucky in a sense. We're very limited in terms of woodland expansion because of the sort of landscape reasons. So at Chatsworth, we've actually got a really nice balance of woodland and field and moorland in the landscape surrounding Chatsworth and on on the main estate. We're not really looking to do any larger areas of woodland creation because they're not really necessary. And, you know, we're all about right tree, right place. We're not, we want to plant loads of trees, but only if they're in the, the right place and for the right reasons. And in terms of sort of starting to harvest timber from new woodlands, Again, they, it will sort of vary depending on the species and the, the crop and everything. So, I mean, really, we'll be looking to start thinning some of our conifers at probably about age 20. Um, but with the, the eucalyptus, we're sort of looking at that potentially being earlier from what we've seen from, from other creation sites. So that would be quite exciting. It just depends, really. But I suppose first thinnings would be the first time we'd be looking to sort of actively go in and start felling trees. Let's bring this back to farmers. I'm interested in both of your views on this, but what advice would you give to a farmer who has some existing unmanaged woodland on their land? And I think we're probably talking to most farmers here. In terms of how to approach making that woodland pay, what approach would you take if you were advising them? Sam, let's start with you. I'd I'd start by saying a few things not to do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Rather sadly in this country, we seem to think that um, the people who work on trees are tree surgeons. Tree surgeons are very good for sort of street trees or garden trees. What I find upsetting is when I see woodland, nothing against tree surgeons at all um, per se, but, um, you know, what you need really is a small woodland contractor, not a tree surgeon to work in woodlands. And so I think the first bit of advice I would say is find your local contractors. John was saying earlier, you know, about their economies because you want to have things like a, a farm forwarding trailer. Um, and Jemima's saying what's great about Chatsworth is you've got an in-house labour force. That, I think, can be one of the first stumbling blocks for a small woodland owner who's thinking about managing their woodland, which is that they haven't really got either the skills or the machinery to do it. The thing I'd want to encourage is for farmers to look for local contractors and for local contractors to hopefully be a, be a growing you know, workforce in this country. Woodland ownership has become incredibly fragmented. Um, you've either got the big estates and the Forestry Commission, or you've got very small ownerships. They are on farms. They are people who have bought woodlands through woodlands.co.uk. Their average holdings are probably six, seven acres. Yep. Um, and the problem with that kind of fragmented ownership is it's incredibly hard to manage those blocks. You know, you aren't going to justify buying any equipment ever. You're probably, if you're just an owner who just wants to own a woodland for the, the joy and pleasure of owning a woodland, you're not going to know where to go to for those skills, um, what kind of markets there might be for timber, how you might be able to uh, work with other people. Um, and it's something we've really tried to do locally is to respond where we get contacts from people who own a small woodland on a farm or uh, or who just happen to have bought a you know five-acre block of woodland, um, is to be able to just go in and do a bit of thinning for them. It might be five days' work. Um, but again, this is where our flexibility lies. I've got a workforce and we've got machinery for working our own woodlands and so for us it's very easy to you know drop into another local farm woodland and do five days thinning and improve their woodland Um, so I think it's really about looking for the right people to work with 
whether it's a, a local firewood merchant or a local contractor, and see how you can get something going. But I think in in the you know the biggest piece of advice would have to be do something. Yeah. Um, the saddest thing is how many woodlands are just left neglected. There you are. Any Devon farmers, get in touch with Sam if you want any advice. Absolutely. Um, Chivira, <laughs> over to you. Uh, any advice from you to farmers? Well, I, I, I sort of echo what Sam's saying. I think it's wise to sort of, if you have some woodland, however big or small, it's almost just take stock. It's really important for you to work out what you want to happen or what your sort of management goals are whether that's to have an area for biodiversity that you don't really want to touch, or you want to do as little as possible, even just, just having a sit down and working out what you think you'd like to achieve and then approaching someone that knows maybe a bit about woodland management, whether that's a woodland advisor, a contractor, biodiversity, merchant, like Sam was saying, because they'll then be able to advise you on the best way to go about it and then also provide you with hopefully the skills and the workforce to, to, to do that for you. Um, there are definitely you can definitely make it pay no matter how small your, your land holding is. We do a lot of work now off estate with smaller landowners because there's a massive well hole in the market where you've got your larger forest management companies that are obviously very interested in bigger estates that they can just get their, you know, they get their teeth into. And there's not really as many people that are interested in all these really awkward, awkward bits of small woodlands that are blocking. They involve lots of sort of logistics and moving things around and you have to have quite a lot of specialist equipment. But people like us and like Sam, we do exist and we quite enjoy the challenge of, of seeing what we can do. Yeah, yeah. But just looking at what you want will really help you sort of work out what you want to do moving forward. So I think having clear objectives is, is a really big thing. I think it's quite a good metaphor on... for life, Jemima. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just jump in on the end of, of, of what Jemima was saying there. Yeah, absolutely. In the Forest Commission, we would encourage you to have a management plan and then you can use that management plan to get a felling licence. It's it's absolutely clear that is a legal requirement for felling trees and just get in touch with the Forest Commission and we can help you out with that. But yeah, be very clear what you want to do, write a management plan, and then it just helps guide you for the next five or 10 years. Yeah, and get a felling licence, please. Super. Thanks. Thanks for clarifying that, John. Um, so with your businesses, how complex have you found the process of expanding your woodland area? We, we spoke a little bit about this before, especially with profit in mind, but balanced against other objectives such as improving habitat value or indeed other land uses jemima i suppose when it comes comes to sort of wooden creation profit forms part of our discussions but i think with we've been sort of well i don't know if luck is the right word but really that the current and the past woodland creation grants that have been on offer have meant that you don't really have to worry about profit to start with anyway you know with the grants the way that they are and what's available when you come to actually planting your woodland, they sort of cover a lot of, if not almost all of the costs of establishing the woodland. You get the money for the trees, you get money for planting the trees, you get money for the tree protection, whether that's tubes, guards, deer fencing, and, and you know gates into and out of the woodland and everything. So sort of your actual initial costs of creating the woodland are minimal. It's only really your time as a landowner managing the, the project. And you then get you can then get maintenance payments on top of this to sort of help cover that establishment phase. We have thought about the money aspect, but you almost sort of that's sort of almost taken out of the equation to start with because you get um, such a full grant is available. So it's meant that we've been able to think more about, well, actually, let's try and plant some different species of eucalyptus and see what happens. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't go to plan or we end up just planting some trees that aren't great, it doesn't matter quite so much. We're not sort of really out of pocket. We'll just have an area that hasn't quite gone to plan. I think really money-wise, there's not really much to worry about. 
Sam, not much, not, not much to worry about. <laughs> um, no, but I think, I mean, you know, that I know it's not popular to say the government's doing a good thing, but that's exactly what grants are. I read a long time ago that the purpose of government grants was to place market failure. And that's exactly, in a way, what, what Jemima is saying. What's great about the grants is they allow you to make that shift from agriculture to, to forestry. And they've got to be. If they weren't big enough, then people are just going to put solar farms on their land or houses on their land or something else. So, you know, actually, government grants are doing exactly what they what it says on the tin. They're, they're making that shift. And the payments are exactly as they should be. They're big enough at the moment to cause that shift in the marketplace. Sure. Yeah. yeah, no, just just a reminder that, you know, we are we are talking to farmers and actually one of those really small, really micro scale actually is the value of timber is is not terribly high because it's a primary product. But it's that adding value that to the product that, that really could be quite an interest. So you know, just a small charcoal business, it, you know, there are very, very, very rudimentary technology that allows you to turn your raw material, your first thinning, small diameter bits of wood, bits of scrub. Uh, you, you put it through a charcoal kiln, you know, that doesn't take, take much doing really. And suddenly you've got you know, a high value product that you can sell to you know, a passing tourist at the farm gates, as long with the, the farm eggs and, you know, and, and a little bit of crop at a much, much higher value. So, so at the micro scale, you know, actually it is possible to, to, to make profit from timber. And timber is the oldest sustainable resource that we have. Use of timber predates agriculture. There's always been a return on investment for for timber. Sometimes it's higher than others. Now we've got particularly good timber value. Twenty years ago, it sort of went through a little bit of the doldrums. But uh, but yeah, you know, people do make money from timber. You cut down a tree, and magically it grows back, and you can <laughs> cut it down again. It's it's you know, no one's yet managed to to come up with some a better magic trick than that. Yeah. I think that's a great point, John. I mean, just before we go, and we are obviously focused on the monetary element today, but I mean, one important question that listeners might be thinking about is tree selection. And we have we spoke about this in the last episode, and we'll already speak in the next one as well. But when it comes to climate resilience, also soil resilience, your role in the Forestry Commission is to advise people on this very thing, future climate resilience. And, and I know that you just want to say something here about species choice. Yeah, absolutely. We're you know, very, very mindful that a tree has a long life. Whatever we plant today could still be here in 100 years time before it reaches the end of its rotation. An oak will be growing for 120, 140 years before it reaches its, its, its full cycle of age. So we have to be mindful of what the climate is going to be like in 30, 50, 60, 70 years time. If we plant species, just rely on that same suite of species that we've used for the last couple of hundred years, we might find that tree is really struggling through the change in in water, the the increase in wind speed, sustained droughts that we'd like to have. So it's really important. We would urge people just to put a few moments thought into species choice. Now, it's really kind of interesting to hear Gemma talking about eucalyptus earlier. That is... You know, not a species that uh, that we're generally very familiar with in this country. Um, people have quite right, you know, kind of concerns about introducing something new. But you know, we're not bringing this every single tree from Australia full of pests and diseases. You know, we're taking cuttings and seed from UK trees and planting them around here. So you know, that sort of pest and disease angle, I, I think, is, is overplayed to a certain extent if we are very, very careful about the biosecurity of these trees. 
But yeah, it's choosing a tree that is right for the soils, that is right for the climate that you have today, but will also be thriving in 50, 60, 70 years time and still productive because a healthy tree is provides more habitat opportunities for wildlife. So even if you are having a tree that you know you intend to cut down in 70, 80 years time, it's providing a home and a habitat for the next 80 years, which is is great to think about. So yeah, so Jemima, you know, what's what's the most unusual species you've put on Chatsworth at the moment? Is it the eucalyptus oh, or have you got some question. other even more bonkers experiments that you're you're playing with? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. We actually recently, a couple of years ago, I think some of the weirdest, so the Duke's son turned 50 a couple of years ago and to sort of celebrate his 50th birthday, he wanted to, to plant, we'd recently felled an area, he wanted to plant it and he actually, he sent a survey out to all the staff members of, of the group and said, I want you to tell me what your favourite tree is and then we're going to try and plant one of everything. Um, within within reason, there were some trees that we, we couldn't we couldn't source or we knew that sort of lemon trees aren't quite aren't quite suited to the Derbyshire climate. Um, that's sort of a one off, but we did plant a lot of odd species. We planted things like ginkgo, uh, ironwoods, redwoods, monkey puzzles. It was a very eclectic mix of of trees. So it'll be interesting to see how they get they get on over the next few years. But on a, on a larger scale. I suppose we try to plant sort of intimate mixtures. If we're looking to plant sort of conifer species, we try to almost plant either intimate mixtures on our larger restock sites. I think the majority of our woodlands are managed under continuous cover um, systems. So we've done quite a lot of sort of group felling. So we're felling small 30 by 30 meter coops. And that's actually meant that in each different group, we put in a different species and it's creating this really nice woodland that's actually got loads of different species in. And really, for, for things even like disease resistance, it's really, really handy to, to plant like that because it means that if one species is affected, you've still got a viable forest. And, you know, we've recently had, last year, we had a phytophthora outbreak. Um, so obviously we had to fell all our larch and sweet chestnut trees in the area behind the house. Stanwood behind Chatsworth House is actually an extremely mixed woodland and, and was sort of planted as an extension to the garden. So we're lucky that actually the, the number of different species in there is lots there's a lot of weird sort of um, specimen conifer species lots of broadleaf so it's meant that even though we've removed a lot of timber and a lot of trees you haven't really noticed the effect because they've been it's been softened by the fact there's lots of other trees um so it's sort of brought it home to us that all these other areas on the estate that have got blocks of larch you sort of look at them on the map and think oh if we'd had it there that's going to make a really big hole in the landscape Mm. Great, yeah. Because diversity gives resilience just naturally. That's brilliant. I think diversity is is a great point to actually end it on. Certainly going into our our next and, and final episode. But yeah, there's such a lot in in today. I want to thank you both for coming on. That is all we have time for. Uh, but huge thanks uh, to our guests today, Sam Watmore and Jemima Letts. Yeah, thank you. Before we go, we should just uh, remind people that discussed it in the in the chat there um but the various grants that are available for anyone who is thinking about establishing trees on their farm including the england woodland creation offer for listeners in england speak to the forestry commission or our colleagues in natural resource wales or or forestry land scotland on the next and final episode of this mini series we'll be talking about agroforestry and the trees in regenerative agricultural systems we'll be joined by david brass from the lakes free range egg company in cumbria and Andy Gray, who is a farmer in Devon, who also runs a meat box selling venison from Forestry England. Yeah, really looking forward to that one. Um, please uh, download that episode when it comes out. Uh, in the meantime, please share this episode amongst your farming network. And I hope it's encouraged you 
to think a little bit more about trees on your farm. I'm Ben Eagle. My co-host is John Burgess, and this has been a Meet the Farmers mini-series on Trees on Farms, produced in partnership with the Forestry Commission. John and I will see you on the next episode, and thank you very much for listening to this one.